Um, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Follow along with me if you would. It's on page 220 in your pew Bibles, if that is the Bible that you are using. And this is what it says. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, that's going to be the tongue twister of the day, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the lands that belong to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that, I should be, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. And bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer. <clears throat> you are the God who keeps his promises you keep the promises to people who have no right to expect you to, except for your promise. Lord, I pray that you would take this word and apply it deeply to our hearts this morning. Lord, may we see ourselves around that great table of your family because of your promise to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our, O God, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, I mentioned that I have a lot of Facebook friends, so I'm on the internet a lot, and I noticed something. That pastor smiling at me like, yeah, you are on a lot, aren't you? I saw this um, article on an American news site that I thought was incredible. A Massachusetts director of nursing who at the end of each workday took to visiting an infant who landed in her hospital is now the girl's mother. 
after she volunteered to foster her when the state gained custody of her in October of 2016. Lynn Smith's daughter, Giselle, was born at 29 weeks of gestation in July of 2016 and was diagnosed with um, fetal abstinence syndrome. In other words, her mother was on drugs when she was born. According to a blog, Giselle, who was born weighing just under two pounds, spent three months in NICU, that's the neonatal intensive care unit, on a ventilator support system before she was transferred to another hospital. The infant had allegedly had no visitors during her time at Franciscan General Hospital, except for the director of nursing. With support from family and friends, Smith decided to foster Giselle, who was at that point nine months old, with the hope of helping her thrive outside of the hospital. At first, Giselle's birth parents came for supervised visits that became fewer and fewer until they stopped altogether. And so the, um, the nurse um, decided that her job was no longer to work towards reunification of the baby with her parents, but to adopt the child. She was drawn to the baby's blue eyes and felt a need to love her and to keep her safe. When I got the, the call, Liz Smith said, from the, that the parents' rights were terminated, I imagined that I would feel a day of relief. I had fallen in love with that little girl. It was a day I was really sad. I was really happy, but I was really sad for them. I was gaining her, but they were losing her, and to try to battle addiction and being a mom, that's impossible. So two years after Giselle first landed in state custody, Smith legally became her mom. Little girl had no visitors, and then no family, and a disabling physical condition, but she was made part of a family because a woman committed herself to this little one. There are many of us who look at our lives and wonder what connections we have. What family are we really in? We look at ourselves and wonder if we are really all that useful. We have some deficits. We have some difficulties. But we see in the passage that was read to us this morning a picture of God's commitment of kindness and grace to us. No ties, no cares, no physical wholeness. Yet God commits himself to us. An example of such kindness is found in this passage. The passage I just read to you this morning. I'm hoping that you have left it open so you can look at it as we go through it. David was bit perpetually busy for almost two decades. He was fleeing the unwarranted wrath of Saul, then fighting the Philistines, fighting for them, fighting against them, recapturing the people who were made captives from Ziglag. And then he saw Saul and his sons defeated, Jonathan in particular, and killed. And then he fought the claims of Saul's other son, Ishbosheth. There's another great name that you can try to practice. To the throne and finally settling all the exterior claims of Edom and Moab and all the other places to the kingdom of Israel. 
there was a new dynasty set up for David. There had been no time to settle or to contemplate or to assess or to think back until now. Peace was at hand and time had come for thoughtful consideration of all that had occurred. So this morning, as we think about that big picture, David, considering all that had occurred, I want to bring to you four points. The first point is the remembered promises of the king. Remembered promises of the king. The second is the desire to show the kindness of God by the king. To uh, The desire to show the kindness of God by the king. The, the helpless focus of the king's kindness. The helpless focus of the king's kindness. And the king's kindness expressed. And the king's kindness expressed. We're going to look at verse number one. It says there, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, it looks like a pretty straightforward verse, right? There's a lot back in behind this verse, though, that you need to keep in mind. One has to remember that this is a new dynasty, the start of a new ruling family in Israel. A new royal house set up after the death of Saul and Jonathan and placed in the control of David after a seven-year civil war that another of Saul's sons fought. Things could get very unstable if another of Saul's family pressed for recognition. In the Oriental world, and even in the Western world until the 1700s or so, the wisest course for a new dynasty was to kill or to uh, send off um, away from the country to send into exile every single member of the old dynasty's family. Coups and rebellions were not as easy if there was no figurehead to lead that rebellion. You think of Bonnie Prince Charlie in, in, in Britain. He led a rebellion against the English king and the Scottish king. The Bible shows many instances in the northern kingdom of Israel where this took place, where all of the competing families were killed. Even in the southern kingdom, a grandmother tried to kill all of her grandchildren. Athaliah. I find that absolutely incredible because she wanted the power. But something else drove David. It was his love for Jonathan and his remembrance of the undeserved kindness that Jonathan had showed to him. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Basically stripped off all of the regalia of princehood and placed it upon David. When David was a child, or a young person, straight out of the pasture, and straight from standing for Yahweh in front of Goliath, Jonathan committed himself to David. David was there when Saul began to hate, pardon me, Saul was there when, when Saul began to hate David and warned him when Saul had finally become unhinged. After Jonathan came to the awful realization that Saul was out for David's blood, this poignant interaction occurred. 
But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, when the Lord called David's enemies to account, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved David as he loved himself. 1 Samuel 20, 13 to 17. David had been called into a covenantal promise with Jonathan. A commitment to spare Jonathan and his family when David promises, when David's promise from God to become king is fulfilled. Against every code of Eastern and often Western rule, David was called upon to deal with the promises that he made. Even when the run of all of these attacks from Saul's family took place, David, when he has time to think, when he has time to contemplate, remembers his promise. I wonder why that was. If you were here last week, you heard a marvelous message about 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the commitment that God made to David and his family forever. You remember that? Yes, yes, you're not asleep. You remember that? Good, okay. So God made a promise to David for his family and his throne forever. I did some research and I dug out my old harmony of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, the chronological ordering of the events of those three books. The event that the Harmony lists as directly before the events of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is chapter 7, the promise of God to David. So something twigged the mind of David to remember. Something catapulted him toward this conclusion that I have to keep my covenant promise. And in good part, it may well have been because he remembered just how gracious God had been to him. Just how much kindness God showed to him and his family and his promise of a covenant forever found in chapter 7. We've seen again and again in the life of David that although like all of us, he's a sinner who does and will do bad things, the basic direction of his life is one that shows a heart after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. And so he remembers his promise from God. He remembers his promise from 20 years ago or more to Jonathan, the dead son of the man who tried to kill him and whose other son wanted to get rid of him as king and he wants to carry out the promise what we see here is David gratified by the tremendous blessing that God has given to him and grateful for the mercy and grace that Jonathan showed to him he could not help but out of the fullness of his heart a heart after God's own 
attempt to keep the long-ago commitment he made to Jonathan. David was an ordinary guy. And I don't know about you, but remembering 20-year-old promises are pretty hard to do. Pretty difficult to do. And I doubt that David would have remembered any of this had not the Spirit of God been at work in the heart of David. David remembered his promise to Jonathan, his commitment to Jonathan, because of the Spirit of God working in his heart and working in this heart after God's own heart to do the right thing, even after all this time. He was going to be gracious in the commitments he made, no matter how dangerous. By this, David glorified his God. Now, let's take a look, if we could, um, down in the passage. In verse number 3, I want you to notice something that it says here. It says, after David started talking to Ziba, it says, the king asked, is there no one left of the house of Saul to whom I may show God's kindness? Okay, so how was this commitment to be carried out? Where would David find the offspring of David? After the civil war and the changes of dynasty, there was not, they, they were not sitting in Jerusalem or in Bethel or in Shiloh or anywhere else where they could be easily found because being part of the family of Saul and being known for being that was not a very safe thing. Right? Right? Now, don't try that on a dry throat, sticking your tongue out and doing that because it does feel yuck after a while. Anyhow, so David summoned this man who was the servant of Saul, and his name was Ziba. Now, I've done some looking into this name, and I found out some interesting things. Now, I told you about my interest in internet and Facebook. I also like uh, NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigation Services program, uh, you know, with Gibbs and all of those guys. There was, for a number of years, on the unit, a woman from Israel whose name was Ziva David. In Hebrew, the letter for B, Beit, can be pronounced with a V. So you, the B, it's Ziva, could be Ziva. So Ziva and Ziva are the same name. In fact, one of the translations that I used to study 2 Samuel chapter 9 used the Ziva pronunciation instead. And I thought, wow! And aren't you all so thrilled? I told you that just now. Doesn't look like it. Well, I was thrilled anyway. Anyway, so David calls Ziba before him and says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? You see what David said to Ziba? Is there anyone left of the family of God to whom I may show the kindness of God? In Hebrew, the word is the words are chesed Elohim. Now, some would say that maybe David was kind of using hyperbole and stating things more loudly than what, or more strongly than he actually meant. Like he was trying to say, I'm going to show a kindness so great, it's as great as the kindness of God. You know, kind of like what Saddam Hussein said when he got ready to fight the Americans in the Second Iraq War, when he said, we're going to have the mother of all battles. Yeah, that didn't really 
happen so much. No, not really. Abraham faced this when he attempted to buy a burial plot for Sarah. The owner of the plot said, hey, listen, you can have it for free. Did he mean that? No. He meant you can pay twice the regular price. But he wanted to say it in a way that everybody sitting around could listen to and appreciate and have some decorum while he said it. And, they, and, and, a, and Abraham paid a lot more than he should have for the tomb of Sarah. Does David speak in hyperbole? Or think that way? Or act that way? <laughs> Not the man after God's own heart. He was committed to show out of his life a strong reflection of the chesed that Elohim or God had shown to him. This was not just run-of-the-mill kindness. This was the kind of care and kindness that is committed and carries out love and mercy to the one in focus. If I am committed to loving you, I will do it because that's what God does for me. That's what God does for me. That's the very idea of chesed. In its use across 245 times in the Hebrew scriptures, it's focused on the working out of covenant promise of the one being cared for unconditionally. I have made a commitment, therefore I will keep it, even if it means that I'm swearing to my own hurt. That, this is grace at its highest form. David was keeping an old promise that cost him. It cost him time in finding the heir of Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan. It cost him his own security. A child of Saul and Jonathan at his table may be the thing that causes rebellion to ripen and is safe to be compromised. It will cost him dignity. What kind of a king has as part of his hangers-on the family of the old dynasty? Who keeps a defeated rival and cares for him? David is saying, I will show kindness. I will show faithfulness. I will show loving kindness. I will show grace, I will show mercy, I will show commitment, even if it costs. That's the range of meanings that flow out of the word chesed. And it's one of my favorite Old Testament words. This is what the God whom I love is like. He is my promise, my commitment to kindness. Isn't that how God is for you who are loved by him? We are loved with an everlasting love that comes out of the immutable commitment of God to his people. God made a commitment in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. God made a commitment in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham. In Genesis 22 to Abraham. And then it goes on and on seeing God make commitments to his people again and again. And then you see it in what pastor shared with us last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Throughout the scripture, God will show the kindness of God to his people because that is how great King David's God works. And that's how David works, the man after God's own heart. So that's two things. And you've noticed, first of all, uh, that just need to go back and remember promise of the king and then the desire to show the kindness of God by the king. The third thing we come to is what we see about the helpless one who is the focus of David's kindness. Now, David found the right person to help him in his quest. If you'll notice in verses 3 to 6, the king asked, is there 
No one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is in the house of Malak, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So David had him brought from Lodabar and from the house of Malak, son of Amiel. As you read this passage, it seems kind of like the servant of Saul is taking his time getting to the details. It just sort of seems like, come on, tell me some more. Tell me, tell me some more. Come on, come on. That's the way it, that's the way it feels as you read this. Is it because of fear that what's going to happen to the last of Jonathan's clan? This man, Ziba, was now well-to-do with his sons and his servants. Is it because he had some reason not to have Jonathan's clan found because Ziba was usurping the heritage of Saul? We don't know. But the note, but note what he says about this man. He's the son of Jonathan, therefore of the cutout dynasty. He is lame in both feet. He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel. He is in Lodabar, but his name is not given here. In verse 6, the man comes forward and his name is given, Mephibosheth. And when he comes into David's presence, he bows down, the, king, the New International Version says. Other versions use prostrated himself or fell on his face. When they use these kind of comments, prostrated, fell on his face, what does it make you think is going on here? He's scared to death. And he falls on his face and hopes nothing worse happens and has a bad feeling about all that's going on. And then later in verse number 8, Mephibosheth asks, why do you take notice of a dead dog such as I? From Ziba's position, and from, from Mephibosheth's as well, the man is hopeless, helpless, inconsequential, and a nothing. Look at the list I just mentioned to you. Son of Jonathan, the wrong clan. David's victories have dealt with that whole dynasty, and it's gone. Lame in both feet. A description of his disability, but also maybe a euphemism for the hopelessness of his disability. He's just a cripple, or he's too weak to matter. In the house of Machir, a good and prominent man, but this man had to take care of Mephibosheth and his little family. In Lodabar, on the east side of the Jordan, away from Jerusalem, but the word Lodabar means no pasture, or really, nowhere. Mephibosheth. Originally, his name was Merbial, Merabiel. But because of the connotations of the word Baal, in the last part of his name, it got changed to Mephibosheth. So it changed his name from being one who spoke and ruled to one who spread shame. That's what his name means all because the writers and others were afraid of putting that B-A-A-L in the book because Baal became a very bad influence on Israel. He was terrified. And he calls himself a dead dog. Do you see that attitude as it grips in the pages of Scripture? Mephibosheth did not think much of himself. He thought he was really not much. Why are you wasting your time with me? I'm of no use to you. 
One of the saddest things that I had to think about in the experience of my life is the attitude that my dad had about himself. My dad was born into a godly home. The third of six brothers had a lot of things going for him. He was handsome. He was well turned out. He was involved in his Salvation Army Corps or church and more. He only got to grade eight. And later I found out that he could not even read at a grade four level. But he owned a great car as a kid. At 17 years old, he drove it without a license and got into an accident, injuring someone else. He was so traumatized that he never drove ever again. Uh, that doesn't mean he didn't backseat drive. I'm going to tell you a story. He comes to Vancouver. He's been here only a couple of times, and he's sitting in the back seat of my car, and I'm driving down the road, and he's telling me where to go when he's never been there before. That was kind of odd. That might have all fit in with where he was at. There's, a, there's backseat drivers than there is. You really want to do that, backseat drivers? That's never happened to you guys, right, Pastor? Never happened to you or Sarah. And Sharon, don't say a word. He got married, and the challenges of caring for a family as well as a third child with some birth defects caused him to see himself in a poorer and poorer light as the years went by. He took it as a personal failure to have a child like my brother. Alcohol, heavy smoking, debt, despair, introversion of a dangerous sort, anxiety, and fleeing from God became his path to his parents, his wife's, and his kids' sorrow. He felt that he was useless to God. So why would God ever have Gordon Bowles? Even seeing a pastor confined to a wheelchair who was being used by God was not enough to click him around to see that he was useful for God or that God could do what he was going to do my father came as close as I can imagine to the view that Mephibosheth had as he lay prostrate before David. To be, in, to be honest, why would anyone want a person as traumatized as Mephibosheth? Why would God want a person as low down and hopeless as my dad felt he was? We live in a world where self-assurance and personal appreciation are hugely important. People often think that they can project a certain image to be successful. Maybe you feel that way as you consider the life you have to live. But inside, or to those who know you, or in the quietness of your home or in your room, another image takes hold. I'm not worth it to be cared for, to be loved to be happy, to be accepted. There is no place to go to be comfortable and at home. I expect that many people, even in this room, who proclaim that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, many, many people live what one person called a life of quiet and not so quiet desperation, feeling helpless, hiding and going about life in a rut, only filled in, fulfilling in a change from time to time to a worse rut. My father said he lived a weekday rut and then a weekend rut. And that's how he lived. I have to admit that not just my father has struggled, had struggled 
with how he viewed himself. I have felt this way on occasion and at my worst moments. I have felt that way even this morning as I was preparing to get up here and speak to you as I was having some kidney struggles. I have felt this way often when the Lord showed me I could no longer uh, be counted on to lead a ministry anywhere. At my worst moments, when the position I have in Jesus Christ is not apparent to me for a minute, or an hour, or a day, or a week, it tends to despair and a feeling of useless hopelessness before others and before God. Let me go to the fourth point. The king's kindness expressed. Verses 7 through 12. David had a plan that would be beyond anything that Mephibosheth ever conceived of. Note, if you would, verses 7 to 12. Don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything everything that belongs to Saul and to his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young man named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. The prostrate, frightened, lame son of the dead heir was about to hear news that he could not have imagined in his wildest dreams. David was not going to kill this member of the deposed dynasty. Don't be afraid. David was going to give him all the land of his grandfather Saul. David was going to have servants tend to all and to give the produce to him and his family for their provision. David called upon Mephibosheth to eat at the royal table perpetually as part of the family with honor and privilege unlike any he had seen since his early childhood. And his son Micah would be cared for too. In all of this, David would exercise chesed, covenant kindness, covenant faithfulness. To him, because of a promise made many years ago to Jonathan, David is a covenant-keeping king. So, wait a minute. What do I have to do to, do to have this? Nothing. What about my background? So what? But I'm from nowhere. No problem. I'm a crippled one of no help to you at all. I don't, I don't want help. Is there nothing I owe you despite all that I am? Not a thing. I get to be in your family? Yes, you do, with all of its privileges. Now, here is the essence of covenant kindness. A kindness that is like the kindness of God. There's no requirements. 
There's no qualification. There's absolutely nothing that one must do except recognize the undeserved gift for what it is. Totally free. On the basis of the promise that David made so many years before to his now dead friend, this kindness was all for Mephibosheth. Free and clear. The ties of family were his, his adoption to the table of the king, the provision of land and its produce was from the hand of the king, the support of his progeny was from the king as well. A promise kept in perpetuity was a boon for this dear, formerly hopeless, helpless man. Wow. But you know something? On a far grander scale, a promise was made before the foundation of the earth by God to his beloved one and only, the Son of God, Jesus. On the basis of Christ's obedience and the love of the Father for the Son, chesed is lavished on all who are Christ's people, who have faith in him alone. No longer is there a need to feel helpless or hopeless or inconsequential, for despite the crippling of our sin nature and our sinful deeds, Jesus has the right to give the promise of the adoption of sons. Galatians 5, verse 4. To all who believe on his name. John 1, verse 12. No longer is there a wrong side of the tracks or an embarrassing name, but instead there is fitness and no shame in Christ. There's even more. Look what Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 12 say. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people, my family. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And hear this, and I will forgive their wickedness, and remember their sins no more. As we consider the chesed of God to us, the kindness of God is far better than even David's kindness. We are left with an amazing thought. Not only will I be part of his family, but I will have God's law on my heart. On my heart. And the sin that so sticks to me both on the interior and the exterior of my life that so makes me feel so helpless, will be dealt with and forgiven. And I'll be God's and he'll be my father now and forever. Do you recognize what kind of life you live now? If you've never trusted Christ alone, may you live a life of, maybe you live a life of quiet desperation. Unknown to others, but a day today millstone is about your neck. God has made his covenant with his son and all who will trust in him. And so the question comes, have you ever trusted in Christ? Will you cry out to him for his grace and his kindness applied to you? I want to praise the Lord for the fact that my father finally did. In the last years of his life, as the addictions he struggled with and the health that so pulled him down sank him further and further into helplessness, he saw finally that the Lord's kindness, the Lord's said, was for him.
unconditionally. He need not shape up or improve to be useful for God. He was accepted at the table as part of God's family. Oh, the joy he had in the Lord in the last few years of his life. It was remarkable to see him when he came to visit or we talked with him on the phone. The king of kings showed to my dad, Chesed. And now in heaven, my helpless dad is singing with the angels as part of the numberless chorus that no man can number. Uh, to conclude, I'd like to share with you this quote from one of my favorite old books, Chuck Swindoll's The Grace Awakening, about the recognition of what it is to receive the kindness of God, the chesed of God, his amazing grace, and be part of a family. I want you to imagine a typical scene from several years after this passage takes place. Dinner bell rings, ta-ling, ta-ling, throughout the king's palace. And David comes to the head of the table and sits down. In a few minutes, David's oldest son, Amnon, clever and crafty and sneaky Amnon, sits to the left of David. Lovely and gracious daughter Tamar, a charming and beautiful young woman, arrives and sits beside Amnon. And then across the way, son Solomon walks slowly from his study, that precocious and brilliant yet preoccupied Solomon. The heir apparent slowly sits down. And then Absalom, another son, with his beautiful raven-colored flowing hair, down to his shoulders sits down. That particular evening, Joab, the courageous warrior and David's commander of the troops, had been invited to dinner. Muscular bronze Joab is seated near the king. Afterwards, they wait. Then they hear a shuffling of feet and a clump, clump, clump of the crutches as Mephibosheth rather awkwardly finds his place at the table and slips into his seat. And the tablecloth covers his feet. I ask you, does Mephibosheth understand God's kindness? Chesed? think so. Little Giselle, from the start of the message, she has a home. And so in a way, that nurse, Liz Smith, showed said to that little baby. I appreciate on many days God's said for me. Not every day, but many days. And I have a home. And my father finally has a home in heaven. The question comes, do you know that you do? Do you have a home? Let's pray.